Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and unfortunately, Maddie couldn't make it again this week to record. Just with everything going on with COVID-19 and having to work from home and now teach your children, it's gotten really crazy to try to organize a time to get together. I'm sure you can understand. I don't know what it's like where you live, but it's definitely unprecedented and a different lifestyle than I'm used to living. So we're going to make this work, though. But you're stuck with me, hopefully, for just one more week. I'd like to take a moment, though, and thank our listeners from Louisiana. So thank you, listeners in Leesville, Metroer, Sladell, New Orleans, Shenandoah, Benton, Appaloosas, Fort Polk, Denham Springs, New Iberia, Boiser City, Baton Rouge, and Central. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. So if you haven't had an opportunity, please check out our website. It's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. There you will find all of our show notes and our resources that we use to put the show together along with pictures that go along with the episodes. We also have a contact page where you can give us some case requests or even drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. We also have a Facebook page by the same name, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and an Instagram page with Criminal Dis Pod, D-I-S-P-O-D. Okay, so we're going to jump right into the episode this week. And this episode comes from an episode of Forensic Files that I had seen months ago. And it just really kind of stuck with me because I thought it was pretty neat how they built the case to convict Vincent Brothers. So Vincent Brothers was born on May 30th, 1962 in Bellport, Long Island, New York. He was one of 10 kids, 10 Oh my gosh. And by all accounts, at least according to his mother, Margaret Brothers, he was charismatic, responsible, and a hardworking boy. And those traits seemed to follow him into adulthood. Vincent Brothers served for a time in the Marine Reserves and then headed out west in the mid-80s to complete his master's degree in California after he had graduated from Norfolk State University. In 1988, with his then-girlfriend, who he had met while they were both attending California State University in Bakersfield, California, he had his first child, a girl. Now, Vincent would later bring a lawsuit against his girlfriend to establish paternity, and once it was verified he was the father, he was awarded joint custody and visitation rights. But he was also ordered to pay support in the form of $350 a month, which was then raised to $771 by 2003. So keep that in mind. So our story does predominantly take place in Bakersfield, California, which is approximately 115 miles north of Los Angeles, located in the San Joaquin Valley. It is home to many country music recording artists such as Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. And if you remember his song, it was The Streets of Bakersfield. According to a New York Times article published on September 18, 2018, Bakersfield also has the highest per capita murder rate in the United States, with almost 10 murders per 100,000 people. I don't think you're going to find that on Travelocity. So back to Vincent Brothers, who seemed to have a history of relationship problems. In 1988, Brothers was convicted of a misdemeanor spousal abuse and received six days in jail and probation. Now, this wasn't to his daughter's mother. I think they were just boyfriend and girlfriend. It seems he had gotten married and then, of course, had this charge brought against him. And he divorced from that marriage and married again in 1992. But his wife sued him for divorce, claiming he threatened to kill her and was physically abusive towards her. 
So in 1996, Brothers had also allegedly sexually harassed a woman who worked with him at Emerson Middle School, where he was employed as a vice principal, and by all accounts was a very well-liked vice principal. She claims on a visit to his home, he had hit her, dragged her into his bedroom, and tried to take photographs of her. Now, she tried to call the police, but Brothers yanked the phone away from her, and she was able to run and get out of the house. She attempted to file a police report, but claimed she was dissuaded by doing so by the police, since Vincent Brothers was considered a respected member of the community. Brothers' harassment continued per his victim, and on another occasion, Brothers had started caressing her hip while she was working at the front counter in the school office. This woman took a leave of absence from what she considered to be an oppressive work environment as she was continuing to be harassed at school, and it now included threatening phone calls from Brothers. So the school district did investigate the woman's allegations, informing Brothers that if they were accurate, it could jeopardize his career in education. Now, Brothers denied the allegations, and there is no record that he was ever disciplined. However, after the school wrapped up their investigation, Brothers was transferred to another school. So in the year 2000, Vincent was now working at John C. Friedman Elementary School in Bakersfield. And again, he was a well-liked figure in the school. He was known to walk students home after the school day ended just to make sure they got home safely. And it was at Fremont Elementary that brothers met Joni Harper, who was employed as a campus supervisor for security at that time. Vincent and Joni married after the birth of their first child, Marquise. But that marriage was annulled in September 2001, so they weren't married very long. And this was due to Vincent's infidelity. Now, Lindsay, their second child, was also born in 2001. So it sounds like Joni was pregnant as they annulled the marriage and their daughter was born. Vincent and Joni secretly remarried in 2003. And four months later, Marshall, their third child, was born. Now, Joni had confided in friends that her marriage was once again in trouble. And she was afraid that Vincent, according to her friends, this was a quote from Joni, might try to get rid of me. So on Tuesday, July 8, 2003, Joni's best friend stopped by her house to see her and the kid. Joni's mother, Ernestine Harper, was living with Joni at the time as well. So she was concerned because Joni and the kids and Ernestine, they hadn't been seen or heard from since attending church on Sunday. Now, Vincent wasn't around as he had flown out to Ohio to visit his brother Melvin over the holiday weekend and had yet to return. So Joni's friend found the sliding glass door open and she went into the home. And what she discovered was that Joni, her mother Ernestine, Marquise, who was four, Lindsay, who was a little shy of two years of age, she was around 23 months, and Marshall, who was six weeks old, were all dead. So I had watched an episode of Killer Instinct, and it was in season one, episode 10, that FBI profiler Mark Seforic was called in to assist in this investigation. This was about four weeks later after the discovery of the bodies. And Bakersfield detective Jeff Watts was also assigned to the case. So what the profiler put together was that where Joni and the kids and her mom lived was in a ranch-style home in a quiet neighborhood on a corner lot. And it was really a sprawling ranch as Joni and the kids were on one end and Ernestine kind of had her own bedroom on the other end separate. Police determined that the family was killed sometime Sunday afternoon after they had returned home from church and had settled down to take their afternoon naps, which was very customary for them all to do. Joni and her children were in her bed while Ernestine was in her room again on the other side of the house. The killer entered the home and started in Joni's bedroom, shooting her in the head two times. Then the killer shot Lindsay in the center of her back. 
Now, there were no signs of forced entry into the home. Now, Ernestine, they figured, must have heard the noise at some point and had come into the hallway to investigate. She had a 38 revolver that she used as protection in her hand, but she never got to use it. She was shot two times in the face and dropped in the hallway right outside her bedroom door. The killer returned to Joni's bedroom then and shot Marcus and then fired the fatal shot into the baby's back. Every shot fired was to inflict a fatal injury. Now, the killer didn't immediately flee the scene, instead going to the kitchen and taking a knife from the butcher block, then returning to the bedroom to stab Joni multiple times in her back. The killer then unscrewed the TV connections, but laid the TV gently down on the ground. The killer then dumped Joni's purse on the laundry room floor, but took nothing of value, even leaving the money behind. So to the profiler and the investigators, it seemed that the killer wanted to throw the police off, wanting them to think that someone had broken into this home and didn't want to really be identified, so they killed any witnesses. So before leaving, the killer went back into the bedroom covered the bodies with blankets and pillows that were actually brought in from other rooms. Now, to the profiler, this killer was goal-driven. The annihilation of Joni Harper, her children, and her mother, Ernestine, had a purpose, and the killer executed their plan. To the profiler, what he told investigators was this killer knew Joni Harper. This was not done by a stranger. Now, Mark Seforic, again, the FBI profiler, felt Joni was the main target as she had sustained the most injuries and had knife wounds in her back, which were inflicted post-mortem. Seforic theorized that the killer's behavior indicated significant anger. So police were concerned initially about Vincent Brothers, like, is his life in danger? This family was clearly targeted. And the police discovered that Vincent had traveled to Ohio, and 13 hours later, Detective Watts headed to North Carolina, since that is where Vincent and his brother Melvin had traveled to to visit their mother. So Vincent had flown into Ohio, where his brother Melvin lives, and then both of them had gone after a few days down to visit their mother in North Carolina. Now, when the North Carolina police were talking to Vincent, they found him to be very traumatized. He was crying inconsolably. He was speaking gibberish. He wasn't really providing much information. To them, he seemed like an unlikely killer. And the fact that he was across the country when the murders occurred initially ruled him out. Plus, there was no real evidence connecting him to the murders. Now, Detective Watts, he wasn't quite convinced of Vincent Brothers' innocence because he noted when talking to Vincent, Vincent never asked how his wife and kids died. So the detective was also given receipts from Vincent from various things he had purchased on Saturday and Sunday while in Ohio to show that he was nowhere near Bakersfield. So even though he didn't ask about how they died, he was providing evidence to show I wasn't there. Here are my receipts where I was. So on July 11, 2003, Vincent Brothers returned to Bakersfield. He did not attend the memorial service for his family, but did attend their funerals on July 16th. As police dug further into the investigation, they discovered that Vincent Brothers had no longer been living at his home. He had moved out in April of 2003. So effectively, since April, Vincent and Joni were separated. And Joni was planning to divorce Vincent for a second time, and this time to go after child support for the three children. They also discovered Vincent's history of violence against women and started because of that to look a little more closely at his alibi. So we know that husbands or spouses in general, boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, they're usually the first ones investigated because they're the closest to the victim. But initially when they looked at it, they're like, well, 
he was all the way across the country. He couldn't have done this. But now that they were looking at his history, they knew that they were getting divorced for a second time. There's motive there. Okay, let's look into this a little further. So they looked at the store receipts that Vincent had provided, and they obtained video from each of the checkouts. And what they were surprised by was the person signing the receipt for the credit card wasn't Vincent. It was his brother, Melvin. So police brought Melvin in, and they confronted him with the video evidence. And that's when he told police Vincent had directed him to go to various stores around his home at certain times and purchase items and sign his name to the credit card receipts. Melvin and his family told police that from Friday evening, July 4th to Monday evening, July 7th, they had not seen Vincent. In fact, police could find no one who saw Vincent during that time period. So from that, police put Vincent under surveillance. Because the problem was there was really no direct evidence linking Vincent to the house on 3rd Street in Bakersfield. So police then turned to the rental vehicle to see if they could elicit any information from the vehicle. So Vincent had rented a Dodge Neon when he landed in Columbus, Ohio and went to stay with his brother. So the police theory is that Vincent flew out to Columbus, Ohio on July 2nd, 2003, under the pretext of visiting his family. And later on July 4th, Vincent traveled from Ohio back to Bakersfield, where he murdered his family Sunday afternoon. He then drove back to Ohio, totaling a 4,500-mile round trip. And then Vincent and his brother Melvin left from on Monday to North Carolina. So police had the Dodge Neon examined, and the University of California Davis's Bohart Museum of Entomology was called in to assist. So the car's radiators and air filters, they were all examined. And Dr. Lynn Kimsey, an expert in bug identification, identified insects that were consistent and only to be found west of the Rocky Mountains, and was able to identify every bug by species and region of where they existed. So police also tracked down the previous five renters of the Dodge Neon to verify that none of them had driven the car to California or anywhere near the Rockies. So police began to re-examine the crime scene, and they were looking through photographic evidence that they had collected, and that's when they noticed a tip from the latex glove among the items dumped on the laundry room floor. So police sent that tip off for testing, and when it came back, it was a 1 in 16 billion match for Vincent Brothers. So Detective Watts discovered through surveillance that Vincent was planning on leaving town. He was selling all of his belongings, he was putting his house on the market, so they moved in and arrested him on April 30th, 2004 and charged him with five counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. So in January 2007, Vincent went on trial. Lisa Green, who does have ties to Pennsylvania in that she attended Bucknell University, was the prosecutor. And the prosecution theory as to why Vincent had committed these murders was that they were financially driven so he didn't have to pay child support. They paint a picture of Vincent as a serial adulterer who would disappear for long periods of time and when questioned, would act out violently towards whoever his wife or girlfriend was at the time. Dr. Kimsey testified that the bugs found in the Dodge Neon were insects that would only be found by a person traveling west along Interstate 70. Testimony had shown that the mileage driven from July 2nd to July 11th was 5,424 miles, which clearly fit the evidence of him having taken a round trip from Ohio to California. When Melvin took the stand, which is Vincent's brother, he tried to change his story, which, criminal discourse life tip, 
never change your story on the stand. He had said that, well, no, I lied to police about Vincent giving me his credit card to use. And he didn't do that. And and now I'm telling the truth. I didn't tell the truth to the police initially. So when it came to the defense's turn, they put Dr. Solomon, an expert on fast driving, who testified that it would be difficult to average 70 miles per hour the whole way from Ohio to California, as it was the defense's contention that it was physically impossible for Vincent to have made such a trip. 70, I faster than 70 sometimes, but okay. Also, the defense put on their own pathologist, who testified that the murders could have happened as late as Monday morning. So the defense's theory was, no, it wasn't Sunday afternoon. It could have been later that day and or into Monday morning. They also provided interrogation tapes that they tried to show that Melvin was coerced by police to change his testimony about the credit card. Like at first he told him, no, I didn't do that. That's not me signing that receipt on the video. And they're like, really? Because it looks like you. It doesn't look like Vincent. And so the defense's theory was like they coerced him into making that statement that Vincent had given him the card. They also provided a witness to a car accident that Vincent claimed happened Sunday morning when a boy on a bike had run into his rental car at an intersection. Now, there were no police called at the time of this accident as there was no damage to the car and the bike and the boy were fine. So the prosecution and police scrambled because this is the first time they're hearing about this bike accident story. So Detective Watts flies back to Ohio and was able to track down a man by the name of Tamba Leiby. And they flew him out to California to testify. And Tamba Leiby was a car dealer. And he testified to the fact that, no, I was driving that morning of the bike accident and the boy on the bike hit my car when I was stopped at an intersection. So I'm not too sure how Vincent or even his defense team knew about this, this alleged bike hitting the car, but this witness was saying, no, that was me. That happened to my car. So the defense had also planned on putting Vincent's older brother, Troy, on the stand as one of Vincent's alibi witnesses. The defense had planned to have Troy testify to the fact that he had flown in from New York and that he and Vincent had driven all around Ohio on Saturday and Sunday looking at various state colleges as Vincent was interested in applying to to continue his graduate work. But the problem was that when the trial resumed after lunch one day when Troy was set to take the stand, Troy was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find him and he didn't show up. So instead, they put Vincent on the stand. So Vincent on the stand was very soft-spoken, and he would often cry during his testimony, but he denied having any affairs and certainly not killing his family. So when Prosecutor Green got up, she called a rebuttal witness, and that was Franklin School Principal Carla Tafoya, who testified that she and Vincent were involved the same year that his son was born in 1996 and had dated off and on until she broke up with him in 2002. She also admitted that she and Vincent had been in a sexual relationship just week before his family was murdered. Now keep in mind, he was Joni in 2001. They were technically separated when she and Vincent got together, but clearly showed that, yeah, He had cheated on his marriage. He was unfaithful, which he denied. So Mark Sephora got on and testified. In the profile that he gave, he felt that this crime was planned with meticulous detail from knowing the family's Sunday routine, which gave Vincent Brothers control and opportunity. Vincent waited for his family to be asleep, used the key that he had copied, slipped through the sliding glass doors, and began to systematically execute his family. He felt that Vincent Brothers lacked empathy and remorse for his actions. And of course, we all know from previous episodes, these are hallmark traits of a psychopath. Vincent Brothers saw his children as objects, 
and they only meant something to whoever the killer would be, the killer being Vincent Brothers. His stabbing of Joni was his physical act of breaking his connection with her, and him covering the bodies was so he didn't have to look at what he had done, since these were personal to him. So on May 15, 2007, Vincent Brothers was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances, making him eligible for the death penalty. So this jury had heard from 137 witnesses and had deliberated a little under two days before they came up with that verdict. So Vincent was removed from the courtroom after the verdict was read and transported back to Lurdo Jail, where he was being held, but this time under tighter security. Deputies at the jail had found that Vincent had somehow modified his leg restraints so that only one leg had a clamp on it, and he had made a crude handcuff keys that he had hidden in his hair. So on September 27, 2007, Vincent Brothers was sentenced to death by lethal injection by Dern County Superior Court Judge Michael Bush. He is currently being housed in the same prison as Scott Peterson in San Quentin, California. So I'd read an article about the day in the life of a San Quentin death row inmate, and I found it interesting. Initially, when they come, they're not allowed any TV, no radios in their cell. They are allowed or can spend up to $45 to $90 a month at the prison store. All their meals are eaten in their cell. They may leave their cell three times a week, four hours at a time. And visitors, of course, are seen or spoken through a glass partition. And they're allowed out of their cell to shower one once a day. Now you start out at, I think a B status is what this article said, but through good behavior, you can move up to grade A status. And once you hit that status, you get $180 you can spend at the store. You can have now a TV or a radio or a compact disc player in your cell, and you're allowed more visitors. So the appeals process can take up to 15 to 20 years, and he gets automatic appeals because he was convicted and received the death penalty. And the only thing I could really find about his appeal process was that in July 2018, Brothers Appeals attorney at the time, Philip Cherney, was allowed to withdraw from being Vincent Brothers attorney. And the Office of the State Public's attorney took over his appeals process. Now, Philip Cherney has defended other notorious murderers in California, such as Richard Allen Davis, who murdered 12-year-old Polly Kloss in 1993. So that is the tale of Vincent Brothers, pretty much convicted because of bugs. At the end of the day, they were able to prove that that Dodge Neon shouldn't have had any of those bugs in its radiator or filter system if he stayed clearly on the east coast of the United States. So let us know what you think about this episode. Reach out to us. Like I said, you you can do that through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. Maddie and I would like to thank you all for tuning in and listening and sharing our podcast with others. You know, we continue to grow, which always surprises and humbles us, but we love what we do. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We would also ask if wherever you listen to our podcast on, if you could take a moment and give us a review or give us five stars, we would greatly appreciate it. So I hope you're all being safe, like I said earlier. I mean, these are crazy, unprecedented times. So as I always in the show, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle that it takes to solve a crime. So as always, be safe, more so now than any other time in history, not only physically, but mentally be safe as well. But let's remember we need to be kind and look out for one another too. So hopefully next week, Maddie joins us again. But until next time, guys, bye. (laughs) 